so this is where the preface to the Bible ends and the beginning of the Bible begins, the actual main story of Scripture. And Genesis 11 is kind of, uh, one commentator has said it's like a Janus face. It's like looking backwards and looking forwards. It's looking backwards and linking the people of God, Israel, to all of the events that have transpired since the beginning of ever. But it's also looking forward now, grounding Israel in the family and the person of Abraham, of Abram. So it links together, it kind of narrows down that final like funnel that takes us from world history, epic history, as we've started out, and has willed us slowly down, tracing this theme of the seed promise all the way to covenant history, which is now where we enter the covenant with Abram is going to unfold in these opening pages, or in, excuse me, in subsequent pages. So what's happened is that we've been situated as we began this entire study it's like the preface in the lord of the rings movie where it gave you all the background so that when the actual movie begins the title screen pulls up and then it begins you're in this place called the shire and there's a hobbit and a wizard and a ring you have a overall situation that you can put that into you have a context you have an understanding of history overall that you can then put the story of the ring that's going to dominate the whole book of Lord of the Rings you can put the story into its proper setting well now after these first 11 chapters of Genesis you can now do that with this person Abram we know him later as Abraham but now because we have primordial history because we have world history and because we have ancient Near East history all kind of forming these concentric rings, these overlapping rings of uh, narrative, now we can place Abram and what's going to unfold in the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible in its proper setting. So we don't come to it as a blank slate. We don't come to it with modern scientific presuppositions. We don't come to it with modern anthropological presuppositions. But we rather, if we're reading the text... We're now coming to the part in the story where that transition is made. And so we're shifting from primordial history to prehistory. And then with Abraham, we get to what we could date as history. So this is all what Genesis 1 through 11 has done. And that's why so many commentaries break up Genesis 1 through 11 from Genesis 12 through 50, because there's a marked difference when you turn the page between chapters 11 and 12. It's, it's not... It's not a difference necessarily in, in the, the words being used, but the tone of the narrative changes. And for the rest of Genesis, 12 through 50, is going to be family history of one family from the nations. So we saw last week with the table of nations how the peoples after the flood had spread out throughout the world in the different peoples and different places and different languages. And, and we had that cryptic phrase that in his day and in, in Eber's two sons, Peleg and Joktan, the world was divided. And now we're going to see as chapter 11 kind of jumps back into that time period that chapter 10 took place in. Now we're going to see one of the events that helped establish that dividing or that mixing, as the text is going to call it of the nations. Genesis 11. Now I'm reading the NIV, but I'm not married to any particular Bible translation in English. They all have strengths. They all have weaknesses. NIV is usually fine. Genesis 11. NIV 
makes choices that they're not wrong, but they they obscure a lot of the stuff in the text, in the Hebrew text. And so I'm going to be reading, but I'm going to be freely correcting. I won't say correcting. I'm going to be freely um, alternating between what the NIV says and what other translations may say or what a more literal translation would say. So if you're following along in your Bible and, I, and it doesn't read that way, just know that's what I'm doing in this section and consult other versions. Always don't wed yourself to one translation of the English Bible. Always when you're doing actual biblical study, read two, three, four translations and see how different translators have handled the passage. But now we come to this time where in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole world, this is, I'm going to read the NIV first. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Now literally in Hebrew, it says, Now all the land had one lip and one word. So how should this be translated? Is this setting us in a time where the whole world, there was just one language. That's a traditional um, reading of this, a cursory reading. Or is it telling us something else? I'm actually going to suggest it's not telling us that the whole world only had one nation. I mean, excuse me, that the whole world only had one language. I think actually what the Hebrew text says, now all the land, I don't think it's talking about the entire world. But even if it is, that phrase, all the land, is, is just kind of universal from the author's perspective. Just like the same phrase, all the land came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe in Egypt. The author is going to use the same phrase at the end of Genesis to talk about the famine. And we know the famine didn't reach to Greenland or Australia or Mesoamerica. Okay, so all the land doesn't mean the entire world. All the land means from the perspective of the author everywhere. You can imagine. And, and that's the key is this section is going to be about what is later going to become Babylon. And from Babylon's perspective, Babylon was all the earth. Babylon touted themselves as all the world. Babylon was the, the preeminent example of the first worldly empire that set itself up as divine and that set itself up as universal. Babylon is the archetype from which later empires will all take their cue. And so Rome will be described as Babylon in the New Testament. And Revelation will use the imagery of Babylon to describe the final uh, imperial anti-God forces that rise up in history, whatever they may look like. But Babylon, along with Egypt and Assyria, are kind of the three main bad guys in all of Israel history in the Old Testament. So this is the origins of Babylon and it says, all the land had one lip and one word, one way of speaking. And some people have translated this as one language and few words. There's debate about what it actually is referring to because the word one is, is in a weird plural form in this section in Hebrew. It's like one of four times or five times in the Bible that the word one is, is in, in a plural. This is Hebrew technical nerd stuff, so don't worry about it. But some people, because of that, they said this is saying that there, there was, okay, everybody had their languages. Genesis chapter 10 said all the people spread out. And three times in Genesis 10, we saw it mention the peoples and their languages. So interpreters have said everybody had their own languages. That's not a thing. Languages develop and arise naturally. This section isn't trying to tell us how different languages came into being. Just like Genesis 
8 wasn't trying to tell, or Genesis 9 wasn't trying to tell us how rainbows came into being. This is telling us something about this concept of different languages. And what it's telling us is that at one point, all the land, everybody, had maybe in addition to their languages, they had a common language. There was a lingua franca. There was a working language that they all understood. It wasn't, as my friend Dr. Carmen Imes posted her last week, her Torah Tuesday video. Go subscribe if you haven't to Carmen Imes on YouTube, Dr. Carmen Imes, uh, I-M-E-S, yeah. And Carmen had a great discussion in her little, her short uh, Torah Tuesday videos. She's been looking at this chapter in particular, and she does. She she says, and I have to give her credit for this. She says that the he that the words that the people of Babel use in this section sound almost like Dr. Seuss. The language that they use, it's not polished Hebrew. It's not even really working Hebrew in the original text. And, and English doesn't bring this out very much, but she does a good job in her video. Go check it out, Carmen Imes, Torah Tuesday. And, but the whole world had one language and one speech, one lip, one word. As men moved east, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now we see a theme, We've it's come up once or twice before, maybe once before, it's particularly in the in the story of Cain, we saw going eastward throughout Genesis is going to be when there, when you go eastward, people go away from God's plan. Westward is going to be toward God's plan. And it's not because there's anything intrinsically holy about east or west or whatever, but it is this is you see this theme literarily when they're cast out of the garden, Cain goes eastward. He wanders eastward. And then later, when Abram and Lot separate, Lot goes eastward. There's, there's a subtle shift. Every time people go eastward, it's sort of an ominous tone. Don't expect good things to happen. And so once again, this section, this section starts with this little, little hint that something's not going to be quite right. They're going eastward. They're going from the perspective of the Israelites back towards Eden, uh, where they've been kicked out of. As they moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. This is broadly Mesopotamia. Okay, so broadly Babylon between the Tigris and Euphrates, somewhere in that region. You don't want to get too nitpicky about where exactly. But as they moved eastward, they found a plain. Now, plains are great for being fertile. Plains are great for... Uh, not having rugged terrain, being able to plant crops, being able to do all the stuff that we've seen humanity spreading out and doing in the previous chapters. But what planes are not good for is protecting yourself. Planes are not good for warfare and for building an empire and for strategic advantage. You're a sitting duck if you're in a plane settling there. So what do the people do? They said to each other, and this is where they get the language, Dr. Seuss language, it literally says in Hebrew, come, let's brick bricks and burn with burn or burn with fire. Let's brick bricks, burn fire. It's like Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, if you remember that SNL sketch. Um, or Tarzan, Tonto, and Frankenstein. That's the one, not Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. You Saturday Night Live nerds will have to, have to apologize to you. But let us brick bricks and burn and fire. And, and in NIV it says, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. But they didn't sound that uh, sophisticated. So they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar or bitumen or, or however you translate. Now, so they say we're, we're helpless. 
let's, we got to do something. Brick, bricks, burn with fire. Right. Why? Well, there's not a lot of stone in this region. In Mesopotamia, it's kind of this, uh, uh, I think it's called alluvian plain, whatever the geographic term is. It's, it's flood water. It's got a lot of mud. It's got a lot of vegetation. It doesn't have a lot of rock and stone. Whereas in Israel, in Canaan, everywhere you look is stone. Everywhere. everything. And stone is a much more durable building material than brick. Because brick is just dried, clumped together mud at the end of the day. Stone lasts much longer, much stronger. And mortar is much stronger than tar. So the irony of this whole Tower of Babel, people are like, this shows God's anti-technology or, or human at the, humanity at the height. Of, no, it's, this is not great architecture. It's, they're using what they have the best they can, but it's, it's nothing to write home about. So they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower, a migdol, that reaches to the heavens. Or literally, with a tower with its head in the heavens. They're going to build a city and they're going to, with a tower. Now, here's where background helps us. We think of cities and we think of, you know, I'm here in Charlotte, it's a city. Or you think of Atlanta or New York or Hong Kong or wherever. And we think of skyscrapers and this and that. Yeah, there's an element of that. But the main function of cities in Genesis and in the rest of the Torah, the main function of cities is as fortresses, as protection. Cities had walls and they had a gate and they were a way to protect people, that people could huddle together and live together. They could go out during the day, do their work, process their foods, raise their flocks, do whatever they need to do. But at night, they come in, they close the gate, they're safe and secure in a walled city. And cities that had a tower, a tower was usually one of two things, and this one could be both together. A tower was usually a military outpost. If there was a tower, it was as a fortress. You would store your arms there. You would gather your troops there. You would use it as a lookout. You could see all around instead of just having a wall and your huddle on the inside not knowing what's happening. A tower gives you the ability to look out and survey the land. And so a tower came became associated with strength and military might. And also in Babylon, Babylon was renowned for being the first place that started building these types of towers called ziggurats. And ziggurats were these like stair-step type towers. Think of like a pyramid, but terraced. And their literal purpose was to be a place where the gods could come down and bless the people, or the people could go up and ascend into the presence of the gods. So at the top of the ziggurat, there would be religious rituals. There would be sacrifices or offerings or things that would, ziggurats were where the ancients and the Babylonians believed places where heaven met earth, places where you could approach the gods, the gods could come down to you. It was like, it was like the, um, I don't know, the breezeway between the entryway from heaven to earth. And so, and the, and there were ziggurats, Babylon, massive ziggurat, 300 foot tall. Some of the, the, one of the ziggurats of Babylon, which that's huge. I mean, 300, that's a football field, pretty much stood upright for ancient peoples building with brick and tar. That's a lot of work. And so there would have been this pride and this achievement that look what we've been able to do in this, you know, as, as we've huddled together. So they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower. It's top in the heavens. So that, and here's the key to this whole verse, 
so that we may make a name for ourselves. And that word name is Shem. It's the same word as Shem, who we're going to meet later in this chapter. So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of all the land. NIV says the whole earth. So now we see their reasoning. Other, It's not just a purely defensive. That may have been how it started. Prior chapter links all this to this guy Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter. He fought men, he fought animals, he built cities. That's what ancient Near East pagan kings were renowned for. So now we're seeing kind of what this looked like as this process would have unfolded. And this is linked to Nimrod and his descendants. And Nimrod's name means, or likely means, to rebel. So we see now that humanity is doing what Nimrod's namesake means. They are rebelling. Because what was the original commandment God gave to humanity? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over and subdue it. That was the command. God gave it to Adam. He gave it to Noah after the flood. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now we get to Babel, this ancient proto-empire, and they are saying in, they're intent on doing the exact opposite. Let us come together. Let us build a fortress. Let's construct our own empire so that we can make a name for ourselves. There's a play on this with the next chapter. When God shows up to Abraham, he's going to make him some promises. And one of the things of the blessing he's going to say to Abraham is, I will make your name great. That was the whole point of what the Babylonians here were trying to do. They're not called the Babylonians yet, but what these people in Shinar are trying to do. They're trying to make a name for themselves. And after God frustrates their plans in the next chapter, he's going to say, hey, Abram, one of the people from this area, if you go where I'm going to tell you, if you leave this place, if you go scatter over the earth, if you go have dominion over the land, if you do what I tell you, I'll make your name great. That's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. We do these things to give ourselves a great name, to make a great name. We're in the age of social media. Social media is all about, I'm using social media to teach this message. Social media is all about getting your name out there. It's all about getting a lot of likes, a lot of followers, establishing your brand. That's everything on social media. Scroll Instagram for five minutes and you're inundated with people's name and their brand. And it even is unfortunately something that happens in ministry. We want to make a name for ourselves. Let's build this ministry empire, whether it's a mega church or a worldwide teaching ministry or an evangelistic network or, or a Christian podcast slash publishing platform where we can market our brand. This is what so many people strive to do. And it's not that that's not that growing or building is wrong, but we have to realize at the end of the day, no matter how well we know analytics or hashtags, God is the one who is in charge of whether our name is made great or not. We can make a tower from our perspective that has its height in the heavens, but from God's perspective is nothing. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that what, what we labor at is going to be tested by fire one day. And if we built with precious stones on a strong foundation, it'll stand. But if we built with straw and stubble, and that's going to burn away and crumble. And you see this with ministries. This is a thing that I've noticed. How many ministries that are named after a person 
after that person dies, how many of those ministries last one, two, three, four generations? Not very many. God will make a name for us. God will make a name for us if we follow him. And it may not be something that we ever recognize. As the Genesis story unfolds, Abram, Abram's going to die without having in his eyes a great name. The nations that God promises, he's never going to see. That's going to be the rest of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. That's going to be the unfolding all the way into the New Testament of God making Abram's name great. So God's the one who makes the name great. But the people in, this, in the region of Shinar, they think they're going to be the ones that do it. And so, verse 5, here's a little note of irony. Remember, they wanted to build a tower with its head in the heavens, literally is what it says in Hebrew. Verse 5, in Hebrew, the first word is, he came down, but God came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of Adam built. Now, NIV says that the men were building. It's not a participle, present tense. They built the tower. We're going to see that they built the tower. What gets stopped is the building of the city. But it's very, there's a lot of subtlety in this. First, God has to come down. This majestic tower with its head in the heavens that they think is going to be where they can meet and encounter the deity on his own terms. It, the authors, God had to come down just to see this thing. It's a very, it's somewhat humorous way of, of noting or an ironic way of noting how puny this tower actually was. And so God had to come down to see what these sons of Adam had built, literally what the text says. And, and son of Adam does mean human, but there's a special, uh, there's, there's something to preserving the literal wording that makes it uh, a little better because the Babylonians believed that the gods established Babylon. You know, Marduk slays Tiamat and then Marduk builds Babylon or, or, or you know, some other versions of that in Mesopotamian literature. But the, the chief brag of Babylon was we're the city of the gods, we're the empire of the gods. Egypt had the same thing. They believed that Pharaoh was the firstborn of Ra, the sun god. Rome, the later emperors in Roman history would peg themselves as divine. This is every empire establishes itself or tries to establish itself as God's chosen empire. You know, think how many people do this with America. How much nationalism is rampant. We are the light of the world. America is the force for light in the world of darkness, blah, blah, blah. Every empire from the beginning of time has taken that approach. And what the text makes clear, God says, no, God came down to see what these sons of Adam had built. Sons of Adam die. Sons of Adam are under the curse. Sons of Adam are not immortal. They are not divine. Even the most righteous of them, such as Noah in the previous story, live and die. So everything that's happening here that they're trying to do is being undermined by the text itself. Verse 6, the Lord said, behold, in Hebrew he says behold, NIV leaves that out, uh, if one people and one lip, this is their beginning, I'm reading it really literally, then nothing they ponder will be impossible for them. So NIV, it says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. But God, the, the note is, if this is their beginning, if, if with one 
language, their, their common language, they've been able to do this. Just think what they're going to do next. Anything they plan, they're going to do. And there's a note of God's not scared of them. God's concerned. This is, uh, I was a commentator, I forgot which one, uh, Derek Kidner. He said in his Genesis commentary from IVP, he says, this is not the concern of a rival. This is a concern of a creator and a father saying if they're able with these crappy building materials and this rudimentary language of theirs that they share, if they're able to do this as the beginning of what they're doing, then things are going to get really bad. Anything they plan to do, they're going to be able to figure out a way eventually. And that is acknowledging God does acknowledge. It's not like humans are stupid. It's not like they're dumb. I mean, being in the image of God, humans are, we, we put a person on the moon. I've been watching the Right Stuff remake on Disney Plus. It's really good if you guys haven't seen it. And the whole the whole show is about the space race in the '60s and the original Mercury Seven. But the whole Mercury, Gemini, Apollo programs in American history—that's such a cool time when it really showed the ingenuity that we put a man on the moon, two men, and then brought him back with less computing power than is what than what's probably on your phone. Well, 100% than what's on your phone. We were able to do that like back in the 60s. That's incredible. And and that shows that and other things. You know, I mean the fact that look what's happening. I am preaching this. I am teaching this live. It's going into space. It's coming back down at the speed of light. It's going through numerous servers into your app on your phone that you're probably watching who knows where. And this is all happening pretty much instantaneously. There's something to humanity in terms of our abilities, God-given creational abilities. And God recognizes that and says, this is not good. If they're doing this now, Imagine what they're going to be able to do if we left, if this stays unchecked. And it's almost like God saying, no, you, I said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I said, fill this land. You've huddled together and built your own empire. I'm not cool with that. So God's going to remedy it. Come verse seven, let us go down and confuse their lip language so that they will not hear a man, the lip of his friend. NIV says so they want to understand each other, but it literally says so they will not hear. That's a, that's a, not a reference to, but it will come up later in the Shema, in Israel's history. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So it's it's let us come and confuse their language so they can't hear each other, so they can't listen to each other. And so God does this. This is Vic Hamilton in his Genesis commentary calls this the dissolution of the Babylonian lingua franca. In other words, this proto-empire language that was going to be used to establish coercion and dominance in the land of Shinar. Remember, this is happening as the unfolding of Nimrod building these empires. This is God dissolving that, putting it in check. It's not going to stop it from happening completely. The flood didn't stop sin from happening completely. And the scattering of languages, the mixing of languages is not going to stop empire from happening completely. What God's doing is slowing things down until he's able to put into effect his rescue plan, which is going to begin in the next chapter. 
So we're seeing ominous tones, darkness gathering over Mordor. We're seeing the beginnings of that, the rumblings, and God's keeping it at bay. But remember, his plan was through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, the head of the serpent would be crushed. And so through the line of Shem, Noah's son, whose name means name, God's name will be established in the earth. These are the threads that have been that have been laid down throughout these opening chapters. The Lord scattered them from there over all the land, and they stopped building the city. They had built the tower, but the city, the empire, is what they stopped. That's why it is called Babel. That's the word for Babylon. Babel is just everywhere in the Bible you see Babylon. It's the word Babel. So they called it Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of all the land. So why is it called Babel? Is that where we get the English word Babel, like B-A-B-B-L-E? Maybe. I don't know enough English etymology. I wouldn't be surprised. But Babel in Hebrew sounds like Balal. Babel and Balal are, is the wordplay. And Balal means to confuse and it means to mix. It's, it's a term that's going to be used later for um, when, you, when, when ingredients in cooking in Leviticus, like, like food laws and things, when it's talked about flour mixed with oil, that's the word, the balal. So it, it, it doesn't mean like this. It, it means God mixed things up. There wasn't just this one language, this one empire. God mixed it. He forced this spreading. So that now they couldn't understand that 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 language that they had in common that let us brick brick and fire it with fire. He they couldn't that wasn't working anymore, and so they continued to disperse, and that's what we saw in chapter ten. This is during that time during the time of the sons of Eber, when the earth was became divided, the land became separated. Is as people spread and as Nimrod went out and founded his cities that would grow and later become empires. That's kind of what Genesis 11 is giving us another God's eye view of, is God's. And, and so Babylon becomes, in Israel's history, was, we saw, the archetype villain. And Babylon will be judged. You, you read the judgment of God in, let's say, Jeremiah 51, or in passages in Isaiah, I think, 47, there, there's numerous passages about the fall of Babylon, this, this world empire. Babylon is going to be the nation that sends Israel, Israel into exile. Babylon is going to be the nation that destroys the temple. So Babylon, this is like Lord of the Rings mentioning Sauron at the beginning or Mordor or some of these names that are going to have a huge impact as the main antagonist later in the story. Genesis is doing that here with Babel, what will become Babylon. But that's not the end. God has another line. This, this is the culmination of the line of Shem that split off in the time of Eber. And one of the line, just like the line of Cain versus the line of Seth and the line of Cain ended in Lamech and his bragging and his violence and his technological advances and his people. Now, the line of, of, of Joktan goes on and ends with this babble and their bragging and their violence and their militarism and their empire, all that stuff, right? Well, just like before Genesis 5, now in Genesis 10, we get another genealogy showing us another line. 
the line of promise. And just like Genesis 5, Genesis 10 is so, like Genesis 5 in so many ways. The line, the, 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 the line leading from Adam to Noah. And now we're getting from Noah to Abram. And it's done just like in Genesis 5. There's a genealogy of 10 generations. So that's how we know it's not exhaustive. It doesn't include everyone. It leaves out some generations. And if you, if you counted it literally, then Shem would still be alive by the time Abraham's alive, which he wasn't. We know he wasn't, and we know that the, these genealogies are compressed. This is why you can't use genealogies to date the age of things in the Bible. You can't. James Usher was wrong. The ones that calculated 4004 BC as the time of creation based on genealogies were wrong. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. What you do get are the figureheads, the key moments, the highlights getting you from here to here. And just like Genesis 5, at the end of Genesis 11, we get a 10-generation genealogy, and the final generation is a key person with three sons, just like happened in Genesis 5. So these are meant to be seen as the continuation of each other. These are meant to be kind of piggybacked on each other. And this is what we read. Verse 10, this is the account of Shem. Remember, Shem's name means name. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arpachad. And after he became the father of Arpachad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arpachad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. Pause. In this section, this is the Hebrew text. If you're reading the Greek or if you're reading Philo, or if you're reading, um, I believe, the Samaritan Pentateuch, or if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, there's another person mentioned in this genealogy that, that is left out of the Masoretic text, and that is this guy, Kynan. And so we don't know anything about Kynan. We just know that there was one generation that gets left out in this section. And this tells us, again, it shows us the fluidity of the, the Genesis genealogies and how they do skip generations. And it's, it's a textual problem, which was the original reading, the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. Was this person added accidentally or was he left out? Scholars take different views. It, it, theologically, it doesn't matter um, because he's still in that line. But just know that there is. And the NIV and other modern translations will give it to you in a footnote at the end of verse 13. So pay attention to the footnote and you'll see what I'm talking about. But it goes on. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. After he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years, had other sons and daughters. Now, these lifespans are shrinking significantly, if you notice, from the previous genealogical accounts, where, you know, Methuselah was like 969 years. Now they're getting down into like 400 and 200. You know, it's, it's going down fast. Um... When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. After he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. Now the line in the last chapter, the Table of Nations, gave us the sons of Joktan. Now we're jumping back and coming back to Peleg, the other son of Eber. The line, this is where the line divides. And I love this. There's two uh, quotes I want to read. One from John Salehammer. In his commentary, he says, So two great lines of the descendants of Shem divide in the two sons of Eber. One ends in Babylon, which is the previous chapter or previous section, and the other in the promised land, which is what we're going to see as Abram's story unfolds. And Bill Arnold at Asbury said, The line of Seth linked Adam to Noah. 
the beginning of a new post-flood humanity. And similarly, the line of Shem links Noah to Abram, the beginning of Israel. And Israel was seen as the beginning of a new humanity, a new covenant humanity. So it's very cool what's happening in this genealogy. So verse 20, when Reu lived 32 years, he became the father of Sarag. And after he became the father of Sarag, Reu lived 207 years, other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he became father of Nahor. After he became the father of Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years, had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. After he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years, had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And that's where it ends. This guy, Terah, and his three sons. Now, we don't know that Abram is the oldest son, and there's some confusion. There's, there's a lot of... Um, you look in the commentaries, they're going to say, because some of, if, if Abram was the first son, then the ages seem to not add up. And then when you look at the New Testament, how it treats this passage, and you can, you can go as deep as you want in that, check the commentaries for it. But the main point is Terah has these three sons. And it doesn't say Abram's the oldest. It just has the three sons. Just like Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the orders are mixed when they're mentioned in Noah's genealogy. So same thing here. It doesn't assume Abram's the oldest. We don't know their birth order. But now we move into the final um, or, or into another Toledot section, section of Genesis. Verse 27, this is the Toledot of Terah. So we've had the Toledot of Shem, and now the Toledot of Sharon, Toledot, the generations of, the account of, the genealogy of. It's the word that Genesis is divided up into. And so after these 10 generations, just like the line of Seth led to Noah, the righteous, now the line of Shem, Noah's favored son, is going to lead to Abram. So there's a beautiful structure in how this is put together. And it really, you could deep dive into this all day, but we only have a few more minutes. So this is now the bridge that's going to link us from primordial history to the history that we know of, ancient Near East history. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. So Lot is Abraham's nephew, or Abram at this time. While his father Terah was alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now we get some notes into Abraham's family, and they're pretty interesting. We get Abram and then his brother, and then his Abram's wife and his brother's wife. And his wife is named Sarai, which means is a is a word that kind of means princess. It's a feminine form of, of the word for prince. And Milka is the feminine form, or very similar. Malka is the feminine form of king, which is queen. So this is similar to queen. So princess and queen are their two wives. And these names, if you check some of the more technical commentaries that go into it, um, you can look at Vic Hamilton's and the and ICOT series and, and a few others. These names are associated with, with the cult of the moon god that was prominent in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, in, in the, the area that would become the Chaldeans, in, in northern Mesopotamia, worship of the moon god was a thing. 
and the names of Abram's family, even his um, brother-in-law or his, I guess his cousin, I don't know, nephew Laban, who we're going to meet, his name is also means white, which is kind of a synonym or a title of how they refer to as the moon. Uh, all of these names have elements of pagan spirituality to them. And we know that they worshiped other gods. Joshua is going to tell us at the beginning of his book that they were pagans. That they worship Joshua 24 2 is going to talk about when Abram, before he was called out, he worshiped other gods. And later you're going to see stories in Genesis about uh, the stealing of the household gods. And so this is this is a pagan setting. Even though it's in the line of Shem, there is still residual elements of sinfulness, idolatry, paganism. And it's out of that that God is going to call who becomes Abram. An uncircumcised, because that's not going to happen until chapter 17, an uncircumcised pagan from Mesopotamia becomes the father of what we know of as the Hebrew people, as the Jewish people, and then ultimately the father of many nations. And so Paul's going to make a big deal of this in the New Testament. Paul's going to say, hey, those of you that are so hell-bent on keeping the law uh, now that the, the Messianic age has arrived, what was what was Abram when God called him? Was he keeping the law? Was he circumcised? No. The law comes like 400 years after all this. So this shows Abram's relationship with God is going to be grounded in faith. And Abram's going to Genesis 15, believe God, and God will count it as righteousness. And so Paul's going to say, so the faith of Abram is what God has always desired. And the Moses-Sinai covenant, all the stuff that's going to come later in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's going to be an unfolding of a particular time period when God was trying to redeem the world and act in the world in a way through the descendants of Abram to bring everyone back to the faith of, of Abram and all the way back to Adam. But that's all later stuff. The original plan, the, the prior thing was relationship with God through faith. And that's what Abram had. So now in the age of Jesus, there's nothing to add to that. Jesus as the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the final Mosaic sacrifice, the son of David, all of the things that the Old Testament is laying the groundwork for, Jesus completes, draws them into himself and says, now I am your identity. I am the seed. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. You'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus is going to fulfill all of this stuff in totally unexpected but totally biblical ways in hindsight. So Terah took his son Abram, his grandson, oh, verse 30. This is a key point. This introduces one more note of ominousness before this primordial preface ends. Sarai, Abram's wife, uh, Abram's brother, he had a family. They had children. They, they did their thing. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, which we don't know, by the way, if this is Ur in southern Mesopotamia or Ur in northern Mesopotamia. There's good arguments for either. So, you don't need to get bogged down in that if you're like a big history archaeology buff. Uh, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. 
But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So kind of like on the way to Canaan, but not fully to Canaan. Terah lived 205 years, and then he died in Haran. This is kind of confusing because the place where they settle is Haran with a chet, and the name of Abram's uh, brother who passed away is Haran with an H. And in English, they're spelled the same, but again, it just gets kind of repetitive and makes your eyes cross. But they end up in this place called Haran. And Haran is where later going to come into effect, where Abram's going to send his servant to find a wife for his son. And that's where you're going to find Rebekah. And then later, Jacob's going to flee back to that same area, to Haran. So there's going to be, these place names are going to come into effect. This is just giving us the introduction and orienting us to this world. And so that ends verse, then chapter 12 is going to begin. The Lord said to Abram, and it's going to recount what God had said, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I'll show you. And then he's going to give the Abrahamic promise. He's going to make these promises to Abraham. If you go, leave everything you've ever known. If you do the opposite, what the people on the plain of Shinar did, if you leave the safety of your people and your gods and your civilization and you go where I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to do all these things for you. And they culminate with, and if you do these things, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That is right at time. That is how Genesis's preface ends. It puts us all the way up to Abram, and it tells us who he is, where he came from, situates him in the world, puts him as a contrast to the people of Shinar, the Babylonian empire that would later arise. And unlike them, the line of promise, God's people are going to be people who are let God make a name for them, who go where God tells them, and who allow the covenant blessing to flow through them so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a massive unfolding plan. If you guys want to read up on this, the best book ever written on this subject that, that unpacks all of this, Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God, hands down the best book on this topic in English that I'm aware of, because it goes into how this promise then will unfold throughout the whole rest of the Bible. And, and it will trace it both backwards to Genesis and the creation and God's desire to be a God of all the nations and forward all the way to Revelation that ends with a city with garden imagery. So it's like the best of Babel, what Babel pretended to be, and Eden merged together as the New Jerusalem. And who comes, who enters, who is part of the New Jerusalem? People from every tribe, language, people, nation. And how are they part of it? Because they worship the Lamb of God. And who is the Lamb of God? He's the son of David. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of the woman. So it's a beautiful culmination of the whole overarching biblical story. And it begins in Genesis 1 through 11.